Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Hey everyone, welcome back to Podside Picnic, coming at you from Missoula, Montana. It's me, Connor, and you know me by now. Uh, I'm here with my co-host, and for the first time in the nearly two-year run of this podcast, when I say those words, I'm not referring to the valiant Pete. I'm actually referring to the Yuna to my Jin Sakai, that is our brand new third co-host, Carlo Yeager Rodriguez. Welcome. And the crowd goes wild. The crowd goes insane. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Glad to be on, man. Also glad to hear that intro. Uh, so we're going to be talking. We're going to be talking about, uh, is it Dark Souls 3? <laughs> Wait, I thought we were doing Skyrim. Dang. Okay. <laughs> I can't seem to get it straight. Just so no, many games these days. A little time, you know? It's true. Uh, but uh, the the one that I believe uh, some people are calling uh, game of the console for PS4 is actually Ghost of Tsushima, which is what you had written about and what we agreed we were going to talk about. Is that correct? Yeah, we're doing Ghost of Tsushima. That's where the character analogies came from. And and I, I Carlos being very professional here by segueing right into that. I, I just do want to pause for a second and say, um, I think most of you are not in the Discord where we announced this yesterday, so. Just to be clear, Carlo is an official third co-host uh, for Podside Picnic. He's been a recurring guest, and we're super excited to have him on um, as our third mic. It's a really big step for the pod, and you know, I honestly could not be more excited about it. If you don't know Carlo, um, he's a writer, he's a great guy, and now he's a podcaster. Uh, well, and you know, and, we'll have and, a chance. Yeah, <laughs> and and uh, uh, what is it? Uh, a sporadic uh, reader of crap books. Yeah, he is. He is Pete's crap books soulmate, um, among many other wonderful things. And like you know, you'll have a chance to hear a lot about Carlo and his work as this goes forward, because obviously he is you know one of the team now. But um, that's exciting. And yeah, as Carlos, uh, Car- I just called you Carlos. Gosh, that's not that's a bad start for <laughs> you're going to call me Canaton uh, or something now. <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> it's it's fine honestly like a childhood of having um a a not exactly uh standard spelling of carlo in a latin american uh you know or in a spanish speaking uh uh country uh territory whatever you would call it uh and a last name that is definitely not <laughs> at all spanish uh, I am used to being called a variety of different names, and after a while, you go like, "Yeah, it, okay, whatever." <laughs> you go, "I know what you meant, at least." Yes, exactly right. I- I'm willing to be charitable. <laughs> You're a charitable guy, but anyway, as as my dear co-host Carlo was pointing out, um, 
Yeah, Ghost of Tsushima is... I hadn't heard the actual like game of the console claims, but I mean, it's definitely gotten great reviews generally, and it's been a big deal here in the second half of 2020. I think a time when people are probably doing a historic amount of gaming, I would guess. <laughs> yes. If you're not if you're not out weirdly protesting uh, the opening the reopening of your f- local Applebee's, you should be gaming. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, and and just to give people some background, it's a feudal Japan epic um, with a little bit of magical elements, but it's you know it's, it's taking some liberties, but it's sticking um, close to certain. It, it sticks to certain kinds of history closely, but takes a lot of liberties to create this kind of mythic samurai realm and the player character is jin sakai who is you know a samurai lord um defending sushima from mongol invaders and you know he he really loves his uncle it's an uncle nephew game and it's like an open world with a lot of very modular storytelling so the map is open but when you step into a quote-unquote story um it, it, they call the quest stories like you step into that you're in that for kind of the duration so there's kind of an interesting balance between um the the sort of like traditional levels of video games and the open map. But I've, I'm babbling enough here, and I, I want to kick it over to Carlo and say, like, you said, I believe, on Twitter or on your blog, actually, um, that this was your favorite open world ever. Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I, I honestly, I think that um, when I'm talking about this, and, and I haven't played any of the Assassin's Creed ones, or um, I did play The Witcher. I, play, I played Breath of the Wild. And I believe I had also mentioned um, that I felt that this game takes the sort of like the mechanics and sort of the, like you were saying, the modular storytelling and so on and so forth. All of that is almost ported over or, or duplicated perfectly from The Witcher 3, which I did play, but the reason I think there's a very big difference, and granted, there's a lot of time between this one and The Witcher 3 coming out, but I think that they perfected uh, the idea of hiding the heads-up display so you don't have this weird um, frame that has all these little bars and statuses and whatnot. Uh, Here, it's just sort of folded away. You're allowed to... Uh, just basically ride around and enjoy uh, to a certain extent. I think it's thematic. Like you were saying, um, it, it takes its cue from sort of samurai film uh, in a, it, you know, that's its fantastical element really. Um, and it just allows you to walk around and appreciate the scenery and what you're seeing in the same way, trying to really evoke the same feelings that the character Jin Sakai would have about his love for Tsushima uh, as his home. And uh, I just find it fascinating that they were able to, you know, sort of integrate stuff like uh, where you you chose a quest line or, you know, the next step of your, your uh, story, and they integrated it in a way that is not only uh, uncluttering the frame, you don't have to actually leave uh, the immersion and go to a, another screen uh, because basically it's a wind effect that you can see on screen, and it's also thematic to you know how the uh, you know how the Mongol invasion was ultimately crushed 
in um i don't think this is the this is like another mongol invasion not the big one uh where the kamikaze uh actually takes effect and basically a, a, a not a hurricane a cyclone a typhoon um basically destroy the entire mongol fleet so you know the idea of this divine wind basically protecting japan uh i feel that Maybe I've been rambling on a little bit now. Oh, no, that was great, man. I, I think you hit on a lot of really important things. And I think the heads-up display is not something that had occurred to me, but it's a really great point. You're right. Like it, Most of the time in this game, when you're walking around in this absolutely gorgeously rendered, um, you know, the island of Tsushima, this archipelago, and it's, you know, it's I don't know which century this is supposed to be, but sometime in the Middle Ages, very much feudal. Um, you have these gorgeous fields of pompous grass. You have these wonderful forests full of deer and bears and, and these like great shorelines and stones and like everything about it is lovingly done. Um, you know, the seasons change, you start out in autumn and it's, it's, yeah, you're, you're meant to sort of revel in this world and the sense of beauty. Yes. But also Jin Sakai's kind of melancholy, uh, wistfulness, uh, is very much, I think, a part of that game world and it's it's help it's it's brought into into being by the fact that you're not you're not seeing all of the heads up you know weapon stuff like until you draw your sword to start fighting and then the screen gets more cluttered because that's just you know kind of how combat works like you are really in this in this realm in a really interesting way and i think you're totally right that witcher never quite achieves that i think that's one of the maybe some of the shortcomings of of witcher which is an awesome game um i i think that the most obvious comparison for this well, the, the one that's like I think most at hand for a lot of people, at least, is and perhaps this is just like you know the the laziness of comparing a samurai game to another not samurai game but like a katana fighting based game set in a version of like a, a mythic feudal Japan. Uh, Sekiro from last year um, also had a very similar you know mostly katana based combat system that was all about parrying. Uh, and then counter striking, which is what you do in this game, and I think we both played that one a little bit, didn't we? I yeah, I managed to finish Sekiro at least twice. Um, wow, and, Bra- bragging rights. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, it's weird because now I'm going back to some of the other uh, the the From Software games and finding that my reflexes are now super fast for <laughs> for all the pairing that you need to do but uh getting back to Sekiro I, I enjoyed Sekiro a lot um I think it's uh honestly I think uh it, it's interesting because it, it does have a sort of mythic Japan but one that is very very mythic uh I mean it starts out sort of very uh sort of realistically um you're supposed to be like um I suppose you'd be like a ninja character, a shinobi. Um, yeah, shinobi, ninja. Uh, and honestly, once you get past like the first maybe stage, it immediately plunges right into sort of fan- very fantastical, like fa- like honest fantasy stuff that is based in Japanese folklore and 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 myth. Um, I feel like uh, for me to make that comparison to Ghost of Tsushima is really Ghost of Tsushima has more of a sort of, I may be misusing this, but more of a sort of magical realism feel to it in the sense that there is a slipstreamy feel that the, the spirits or the ancestors or 
you know, with Jin through his journey. And you later on, you find out that the birds represent like his mom loved birds, and uh, he is a he is apparently or his house is apparently linked up to uh, Kitsune the the fox um, spirit and or god in. I'm sorry, not Kitsune. That's uh, the Inari. Fox. I think Inari. Yes, you're absolutely correct. Um, so his his family is connected to Inari in some way, and so those two things become like these little mini quests along the way. Um, I, speaking of, I mean, um, let let me finish my thought on on Sekiro because I feel like Sekiro is doing a completely different thing apart from like the the sort of uh, source material, which is sort of the Japanese history and or uh, folklore. I also feel like uh, Sekiro is entirely it's it's mini game that is integrated seamlessly into the main game is that it's basically a rhythm game. Uh, it has like once you get into battle, uh, it has more in common with weirdly like guitar hero or band, uh, it rock band, uh, than uh, than Ghost of Tsushima at all. Because basically you're you're there to sort of determine the pattern and a rhythm to the the character's attack, the, like your opponent's attacks, and you're supposed to match that. So you're supposed to be hitting the right notes, if you will. Yeah, well, it sounds like you, that's an insight you had into Sekiro that uh, I kind of failed to have, and uh, probably should, like I I did not finish Sekiro, and I found it quite frustrating, and I kind of <laughs> let my roommate take over because he was very into it and he was doing better. Um, and I'm still bitter about the fact that he beat it, but it was fun to watch him beat it at least. Uh, <laughs> I think the thing that I, one thing I learned is that I don't, I don't love that kind of abject challenge from the start in a game. What I do like is, is single player games that I can complete on like a normal difficulty. And then if I get really into it, I can dial up and play at a harder difficulty. I've been, I've done that with like games like Horizon Zero Dawn and God of War, which like at the highest difficulty are pretty challenging. But as long as you know mm-hmm. what you've doing, you're doing and you put in your practice time. Uh, there's something very satisfying about having mastered it. And like, you know, from software games are supposed to make you feel like you've never mastered it. Some people do, but it's supposed to really throw off your your sense of mastery, which I find really frustrating. Mm-hmm. I think one nice thing about Ghost of Tsushima is that the combat is like, I think, exactly challenging enough, which is there's a lot to figure out. You can't just mash buttons. You have to be aware of what's going on around you in all kinds of different ways. There's a lot of timing and getting the right combinations involved. Um but you know, it's not. Uh, it's it's you know, it's it's kind of solvable fundamentally. And I think once you start to, you know, pick pick what things you want to emphasize in combat, then it all starts to come into focus. Like I've been doing a lot of water stance, breaking through shield kind of stuff. You know, early on. Right. 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 Yeah. I mean uh, that that's the the first other one uh, after stone stance or whatever, uh, which is just. Uh, and I don't know if anyone uh, is listening to this has never picked up Ghost of Tsushima, but apparently Stone Stance is just for the the the, the minions or uh, other the, the the rivals or opponents who just have swords, and Water Stance is one that is supposed to be able to break uh, the defenses of someone who has a sword and a shield, for instance. And yeah, and I find that Water Stance is pretty effective in the early game, at least for all kinds of opponents, just because you can, you know, 
propel a lot of force forward with a thrust and then follow up with all these attacks once that guard is broken. And that takes care of most people if you time it right. right. Um, we're getting really into deep into mechanics here, but it's interesting, right? Because I think that's like, that's that's the kind of experience I had with a game like Horizon Zero Dawn, which can be very frustrating, uh, you know, in combat until you sort of you sort of understand the exact kind of things you need to do for specific enemies, and then it becomes very satisfying to just sort of toy with your enemies uh, because you you fundamentally know how to beat them, which I think is you know I think where I'll end up with Ghost of Tsushima, but I, I could also turn the difficulty up and probably have a little bit more of a Sekiro like experience. Um, right. I will say, similar to Sekiro, like the penalty for messing up your timing is pretty stiff. I mean, you take a lot of damage pretty quickly if you, uh, you know, if you don't if you don't time things uh, adequately. So, right. I mean, in that that they do have a parry system, and uh, how how have you had a lot of opportunities to do like the the samurai standoffs or duels? Yeah, I do this as often as I can. Partly because one thing, yeah, I I do, and I have a pretty high success rate. Um, those are fun. Right. And I, I feel like that's the, the, if you look at that, you go, oh, so this is exactly like, this is sort of the, the aesthetic that they were going for. Like they saw, uh, like some sort of, like they mashed up all their favorite samurai movies, uh, you know, uh, and, and looked at the samurai duels and, and obviously they're very exciting. So they sort of replicated that in sort of a game format. Uh, and then probably built, <laughs> it feels like they built the game around that idea, uh, mostly. And um, did you, I, I think that you had mentioned that the stealth aspects of this weren't exactly as enjoyable. Oh, I, I just it's interesting because you, you point out correctly the standoff is really crucial, but you can also, you know, always choose not to do a standoff. And you can, in this game, you can usually... Um, creep around and do do a lot via stealth and the game forces you to do that at times but also you know heavily encourages you to do it to a certain extent i think what's unsatisfying about it at least at a lower at least early on in the game at a lower level difficulty which is how i'm playing currently um the stealth often feels extremely solvable because a lot of the enemies are fairly stationary and you just need to figure out you know where they're looking and then you can creep around and kill a lot of them with almost no challenge whatsoever. Um, and that's fine. That's not, that's not really why I'm playing this game. You know, I want to be a samurai. And, and so much of the narrative is the tension between Jin's samurai background, his loyalty to his samurai mentors, and his need to fight asymmetric warfare. And I'm down for both, but I think fundamentally it'll always be more fun for me to be kind of in a sword scrum uh, and, and taking a lot of a lot of enemies on, you know, in that kind of muscular tanking way, uh, and maybe at higher difficulties the stealth gets a little bit harder. Maybe later in the game it gets harder, but I just haven't gotten there yet. It's just it just feels a little bit. I, I guess it's the game's doing what it what it wants to do, which is make me feel the way Jin feels, which is that sneaking up behind someone and stabbing them in the neck is kind of cheap. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I feel like um, I, I also felt. Um I would I would probably be bold and say that the stealth aspect of this feels a little bit tacked on, um, sort of, uh, sort of to create. I feel like it was added on to create this semi-false uh, branching of uh, like dramatic conflict, you know, between Jin and his uncle Lord Shimura, who is an honorable like he's. 
the steward of Tsushima Island. Um, you know, given you know, he's basically the lord of the entire uh, island, and so therefore he has you know appearances to keep up. And Jin, as his co- I'm sorry, his nephew and ward, uh, because Jin's parents um, you know sort of passed away and whatnot. Um, he he's trying to exert his way of life on Jin, and and to be honest with you, like. This is where a little bit of the uh, the sort of samurai film aspect of it sort of deviates from what they have on in the game, which is the sort of flattened out and sort of simplistic idea that uh, the samurai are the samurai of the films and not real historical samurai who would use basically... You know, if you read Book of the Five Rings, anything that will give you victory is considered honorable after the fact, uh, which makes the the samurai sort of a little bit scummy and not quite as honorable as they're played out to be in the movies. Right. I mean, and and as writers, we we can both appreciate that, like, that highly abstract, um, ornate idea of samurai honor that we see, especially in Kurosawa movies. And, and, And I think you, to take a detour, I think you made a great point, which is that this film is not about history. It's about Kurosawa movies. I mean, other samurai Mm -hmm. movies, yes, but mostly Kurosawa, I would say. Yeah. Um, It's about that kind of porting that onto the history of, of Mongol attempts to invade Japan. Um, And that's great. Like I'm a big Kurosawa guy. I'm all for that. But I think to your point about like that kind of honor positive in those stories, that honor is fascinating to storytellers and very useful because anytime you have kind of a well-developed device that will let you get characters to do counterintuitive things um, that will go against their sort of most basic, most obvious desires, uh, you know, by which I mean they will choose to kill themselves for sort of, you know, <laughs> uh, highly conceptual reasons, or they mm-hmm. will eschew winning a victory or they will fail to save someone or just that they might want to do or deny a love because of this, like this, their loyalty to this ideal. Um, anytime you have that as a writer, it's great because it allows you to disrupt, you know, kind of the basic intuitions about your story and create all of these oppositions and tensions kind of come into being organically uh, from that. As long as the, the sort of the ideal itself is convincing and interesting enough. And I think that's, you know, I see the temptation of that. I think you're also right that that is it's a romantic thing and it's a narrative thing and it's a mythic thing over and above a historical thing. Because at the end of the day, samurai were warriors fighting a lot of wars against different kinds of enemies and they had to win the wars. Uh, You don't win wars through abstractions, right? (laughs) Yeah, you definitely have to get down and dirty to, you know, basically win. And this idea that, oh, no, I will not win this way uh, is sort of a very after-the-fact sort of uh, thing that we've, we've tacked on to you know, the, the reality of it. Now, I, I, to your point, I believe it maps exactly to this idea of samurai as like this um, sort of white hat good guy type of mentality that, uh, you know, the, the American Westerns stole, or maybe they stole from the American Westerns. I, I always forget which, which, who stole from whom. It's kind of recursive over time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah that's the thing. I think it's gotten so complicated. I don't know who, who did what. Anyway, the, the point is that, um, I, I could see that. Um, and, and more so I feel like it was a missed opportunity to have, 
um, Lord Shimura maybe have some lines about how this looks for him before his shogun on the mainland, uh, you know, and how this looks for him amongst his vassals, uh, for his nephew to be out there just being a, a loose cannon. Uh, and I don't feel like that's really, if it, if that was the intention, I don't feel like it's ever on screen or on the page, uh, in, in the dialogues between, uh, Jin and his uncle. Yeah. And I think when you say tacked on, this is, this is good kind of storytelling craft talk because like he, for instance, Jin, um, and I'm, I'm not as far as you, but like he, there's this guy, Sensei Ishikawa, who is the master archer. And I believe also technically a samurai, uh, and has the really stodgy code. And he's, you know, he's that kind of, uh, infuriating curmudgeonly sensei archetype that you see, uh, in these stories so much. And he, he did not make it to the battle where most of the samurai were wiped out on Komodo beach. Um, like in the first like opening cutscenes of this game and you know and now his big priority is hunting at least early on i'm sure there's twists and turns to this story but initially he's like hunting this former student of his uh this woman who he taught like his his way of the bow and she's a master archer and she's in in his mind at least early on don't spoil it for me like sided you know with the mongols and Mm -hmm. he's furious about this and then he also like where the incongruities come in is like when Jin goes on on stories with this guy, you know, they're like ambushing the Mongols and and using asymmetric tactics and doing all these things with arrows because it's the archery storyline. Uh, and then Master Ishikawa will Sensei Ishikawa will come out and like scold him like your way of fighting is not my way or your uncle's way. It's like wait a second, you guys just like ambushed the Mongols by like shooting down hornets' nests and blowing up you know barrels <laughs> and like. And, and that is that the sam- that's samurai tactics, but like sneaking up behind someone and stabbing them isn't. It's like, what are you even talking about? It just it feels like it exists to give this kind of false tension to things, to create tension in dialogue scenes where the otherwise the dialogue would just be this straightforward thing. I think a lot of even great games struggle with this, where like game writing is still very nascent, and even in games that are largely well written and are certainly crafted well at like a narrative superstructure level, like you see writers casting about for like ways to insert tension into cutscenes where it's just going to be two characters in the same side talking about what to do next. And it's like, what do we, what do we give add to give that some flavor? And in this game, they try to get a lot of mileage out of Jin not fighting the right way, but it's, as you said, it's not really instantiated in the game and the, in the game, the fact that you're going to fight a bunch of different ways makes perfect sense. So yeah, that's a long way of saying you're right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like the game is trying to nudge you um, into going the samurai route simply by making it look super cinematic and cool and badass. Uh, you know, as with the standoffs and the different types of duels and stuff like that. Um, so I mean, it, it. I think they're trying to do that, but yeah, I don't feel like the stealth is really a developed aspect of this it's not integrated into the story in a way that uh, feels really satisfying and unified um but you know that that's the way it is and and to your point like i feel like the i think there was enough already uh with the idea that you know as speaking of writing if you have a character who is uh, who has internal conflicts on how to do this or that, 
you know, it, it, Jin's story, as you'd mentioned in your in your newsletter, uh, folks sign up for that one. Um, if you'd, you know, you're talking about uh, his quest for revenge. He's trying to avenge like all the like Komodo Beach for him is like you know the the Vietnam vet in in uh, American movies after the you know after the the 60s uh so you know he's going out and trying to avenge his fellow samurai and uh he's conflicted on how to do this correctly and as a as a sort of an extension of how you would dramatize this you then have those conflicts externalized in the different characters that he talks to you know Yuna for instance who comes from a lowborn uh, background is perfectly fine. She's like, yeah, whatever it takes to save people. You know, if you need to fight dirty, then that's the way you need to do and be quiet about it and, you know, skirt around the edges and assassinate people. Uh, Master Ishikawa is like, well, you know, if you need to kill people from the distance, that's the way it is. And then you just have all those viewpoints sort of, uh, contrasted with the correct quote unquote way that uh, his uncle says, I think that's enough. Yeah, I, I think that I think it ultimately works just because Jin is kind of an everyman in certain ways. He's he's a fairly like I won't say one dimensional, but like kind of like two dimensional character because he has these internal conflicts, a lot of which are about sort of guilt and wistfulness about the fact that like. His father died when he was young, and, and Jin feels like he should have done something to save him, and then his uncle is missing early on, at least. Um, and then other than that, Jin is, like, incredibly upstanding, incredibly brave, incredibly dutiful to the point of heroism in all of those areas, and is just a you know an excellent fighter um, who is active in the sense that, like, he knows what he wants to do, which is defeat the Mongol invaders, but he's also very passive about anything specific that's going to happen. And so he just kind of lets other characters imprint things on him. Like Yuna initially who saves him and leads him to safety. Um, Ishikawa, you know, talking about the, the teaching him about archery and sort of his whole arc. And then you have people like, there's some interesting things here about politics. Uh, like, you know, Lady Masako, who's another, a fellow noble from a different clan and her family has been murdered in a kind of, uh, you know, an opportunistic insurgency by some people that have worked for her. And, you know, Jin's helping her with that. And again, I'm not very far in it. It probably gets more complicated, but it's like that on that you're touching on sort of political issues about class and hierarchy that Jin is never going to reflect on on his own. Right. He's just going to kind of charge through and other characters are going to have to do it for him. And then you have this guy, Kenji, who's like the comical, goofy character that you see in a lot of uh, Japanese stories, kind of the person who everyone is kind of kicking with their sandals all the time because he's like the, uh, he's trying to, he's a sake brewer and he's um, trying to well, make a buck he, and yeah. Yeah. Like he's, he's obviously a merchant, which if I, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm reading too much into this, but this might be like a sort of a quote, not very honorable class uh, of people uh, in, you know, the, the time period, at least as presented in samurai movies. Um, so he's also like a bit of a con artist and, you know, you, you, you know, he, he's just very shifty. Uh, so he's also comic relief. Yeah. And, and through him, you know, Jin experiences a different side of this world, which is someone just trying to make a buck and get by um, in the midst of this horrific war that's going on. So, you know, it, he, Jin is this figure of myth who, kind of wins his way with only the sort of the simplest and most heroic of motivations, kind of wins his way through this world and other people 
reveal complexities. I don't know that they necessarily reveal much about Jin because Jin kind of is the same dude. And I think the game's attempts to make him a little bit more dynamic. I don't necessarily buy just because we've discussed how we don't think that him choosing to learn stealth combat is that kind of seismic of a shift. Um, yeah. I, I would also argue that speaking to back, circling back to the, the writer's dilemma, right? Um, whenever you have a, a protagonist character who is going to be the stand in for the player, and this also applies to the reader, you know, like especially in sort of um, sort of hero's journey slash fish out of water narratives, uh, you are by necessity, I think, as a writer, you're probably going to reach easily for the sort of blank protagonist where they don't have a lot of surface detail or even deeper detail either because you're you they're just a sort of a, a blank space for the the player or the reader to insert themselves into the narrative uh, and see themselves reflected in you know whatever the heroism is or what whatever you know yeah exactly uh jin presents a bit of a blank canvas um and you know it's just a vessel that lets you explore this world which i think is uh, one very honorable choice in video games because there is quite a bit to explore. Um, you know, whereas Geralt in the Witcher games, I think Geralt Lift certainly has more uh, more definite qualities. At least by Witcher Three, he has so many tangled loyalties and past histories with characters that that alone kind of gives him uh, a texture uh, and, and indeed literal, you know, literal and figurative scars in a way that Jin, Jin, like, you know, Jin has his traumas and his, his pains, obviously, but he's also like, he's just so purely a hero, at least, at least thus far in the story. I mean, and I, I, I'm told that's likely not going to change very much. Um, here's a question that is kind of out of left field, but I found interesting. How old do you think Jin is? Like you could make a case for him running a pretty wide gamut of ages, I think. Um... I would peg him as like mid twenties. Uh, not, I mean, he fe- he definitely feels a little older than teenaged, uh, but also given his relative shelteredness, being of a samurai class and and of noble you know uh, background, I would probably peg him around twenty five, twenty six. He's not yet fully formed. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good, pretty good guess. I think you could make a case for him being a little bit older or even a little bit younger, um, pretty easily. It's 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 tough to say because like his, you know, sort of his path to adulthood is one that is so, you know, subsidiary and indeed subservient to older people in this hierarchy and to a sense of duty. Um and I think we're all, you know, we're all very beguiled. Certainly in my own writing, I've been this way by people who have that like they, they try to create that pure duty for themselves and then it's anything that complicates it. Um that is, that is what's interesting about them, but so um, just touching base on because I, I was I was sort of thinking back on on what you you had written about escapism and how like Ghost of Tsushima helps uh, I guess provide I think we're both in agreement that it provides a certain level uh, sufficient level of immersion that you feel like you've escaped um, and and it strikes me that. Apart from the mechanics, there are actually mechanics in the game that are completely aesthetic, uh, that sort of speak to perhaps not Jin's character, but definitely like little quirks and stuff like that. Like you can play the flute, uh, 
and the flute changes the weather, but the weather doesn't have an actual that I can see or can experience any effect on, you know, how you progress through the world. Um, the same thing, like if you are done with your uh, duel or whatever, uh, you can have Jin sort of flick away the blood, you know, in that samurai movie sort of way uh, before sheathing it. Um, so I, I guess my question here is, I mean, have you noticed those controls? And did you feel like it's interesting that they included like just these sort of mini mechanics that are just aesthetics? It has no real gameplay, uh, changes gameplay in any way. Do you mean things like getting in the hot spring, which I guess, um, or like pet- petting the fox? <laughs> well, there, those are also, uh, I would, I, I think you're right. I think they would speak to immersion, but like, uh, on the D pad, um, if you swipe left, you can suddenly play the instrument that you have, you know, like the flute or whatever. Oh yeah. And, and then you, if you play the flute, that can change the weather and so on and so forth. And if you swipe right after a fight, um, it basically, if you're holding your sword, you will flick it or do some sort of uh, blood cleaning maneuver before sheathing it, which is, you know, uh, like I said, very samurai movie type of thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I think what's it, what I think is interesting about those, and I touched on that in the kind of the collective newsletter that I'm a part of discontents is like this game is very aware of interstitial time between stories. So you're, you're immersed in these stories in a modular way when you're doing them. Um, but the space in between is, is also somehow very aesthetically important to this game. So, because the game shows you Jin like sitting on a rock, drinking sake afterwards, looking at the horizon. So in the midst of this, like tumultuous war where his home is being invaded and destroyed, and he has to do all of these kind of branching, increasingly complex things to solve that. Like there's there's an awareness that like he still needs to play the flute, pet the fox. He's still going to sit on the rock. He's still going to like ride through this great pompous grass. Um, the game. So I think that this game has one of the more sophisticated senses of I think of time and space in that way, which gets back to your point about the heads up display that like it. It's a game that that wants us to be very deeply aware of mundanity, um, and it makes me wonder like how far games would go in that direction, um, especially as virtual reality becomes part of gaming. It's like, is there going to be a game uh, that's popular and successful that is similar to this and kind of an open world that like you know requires you to eat at certain points or your blood sugar goes down like will you be required to like go to the bathroom in the game like there's like all these questions that you know i think games will continue to answer in interesting ways as the technology evolves and stuff but yeah i I think i think there's something i i struggle for the right adjectives here or to say what i mean but i think ghost's sense of its kind of like interstitial mundanity of the sort of banality of time and space even in the midst of this mythic progression is really maybe the single most interesting thing about it to me, even though it's very subtle and you don't even have to really notice it if you don't want to. Yeah. I mean, I think it speaks to, and and I think speaking of reflecting, because I I feel like escapism, going back to your, your point about escape uh, there, there is something to that, but you have to carve out a space for you to be able to apprehend art or, a story 
within the safe space outside of like what's going on um, in the same way that, that we're talking about here and also reflecting like, for instance, our current situation where for the most part, and, and granted this is my own privilege and I'm, I'm glad to have it, but this slow-mo apocalypse is very boring and there's lots of spaces in between where I am sort of just, you know, like, you know, paying bills or doing, you know, just mundane shit uh, that has nothing to do with the zombie apocalypse story that I see on, you know, uh, AMC every Sunday or whatever, you know, where it's always action. It's always something that moves the plot along. And I feel like that's, uh, it is actually a, the, the job of escapism or escapist storytelling to really try to, all while it's carving out that space for you to sort of take a break, uh, also in present the story in a way that reflects reality, but in a way that is easy for you to digest. Yeah, and I think like one has to use metaphors in these cases. It's like I I like the metaphor of like reflecting reality at a weird angle. There's something very comforting and mesmerizing about seeing the banality of your life mirrored in the midst of a mythic struggle. I don't, there's probably some good, probably old school theory written about this um, for, for like for literature, but I, I, I it's, it's one of those beguiling emotional things about any kind of storytelling where it's like, yes, I want the epic story about slaying the dragon where the hero goes out and has the hero's journey. But also the, one of the other deepest urges of storytelling is to, feel that your own mundane life is being reflected back to you in a way that is maybe not necessarily flattering, but just sort of, I think something, I think soothing is the word that I would use that it's like, it's okay to sit on the rock and look at the clouds sometimes because the, the mythic hero even has to do that. I think that's one of the mm-hmm. pleasures that we're seeing here. And that I think is kind of the promise of these really immersive uh, game playing uh, experiences. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I feel like this is, I mean, apart from the console's uh, capacities uh, for for being able to render something more less or more realistic, I feel like uh, if I were to compare this with another game, an open world game, it would be sort of Breath of the Wild in the sense that you do get this feeling of wanting to wander around and explore the world, um, but at the same time, I feel like Ghost of Tsushima does have like this weird Zen. Uh, quality to it where you are perfectly fine. In fact, I've just, I never gallop anywhere. I just sort of trot my horse and just pan the the camera around and just take a look at everything that's happening. Even if I'm going, you know, even while I'm going to the next leg of my, you know, modular story or whatever. Uh, So it's, I think it's really interesting to see how they've been able to pull it off. And that's one of the reasons that I feel like it's it's sort of distilled all of these other open world games and made it in a way that you are almost encouraged not to uh, break the immersion. Yeah, well, first of all, I want to say I admire that you're like actually looking around that carefully. I, I'm usually galloping ahead. That's it's my impatience showing through. Um <laughs> But yeah, it's it's a it's a if you want to do that, it's an ideal game for it. Um, yeah, I 
I think that kind of that's probably a pretty good place to start winding this down. I think we did a pretty good discussion of like what the appeal of this game is, and I hope that people that have PS4 um, and are curious about it go out and play it because it is. I think it's still on sale for like another day or two uh, on the PS4 store if that's your if that's your kind of thing. So recommendation, I think, from both of us. Um, oh. Yeah. Yes. Much. And, Go ahead. Sorry. 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 Go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, I was just going to say m- much recommend, but that that didn't sound right either. But go on ahead. <laughs> no, you're right. I, I all I was going to say is I you know as we wind this down, I also want to just reiterate again that we're super excited to have Carlo on, and you're going to be hearing him a lot more uh, because he's one of us, one of us, one of us. One of us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's he's been he's caught in our our weird little shadow realm that Pete and I occupy of of podcasting now. <laughs> you could say I fell into the orbit of the Podside planet. Ah, I love that. This is we need some good metaphors out of Carlo cuz like me he's a fiction writer. Um great. Yeah, All right, folks. <laughs> Have you noticed? <laughs> You're right. So I'm gonna keep mentioning that. Go look up his, his work. Uh, a lot of it, it is it is all worth reading. Um, so yeah, that's that's where I think we'll wrap it up. Go play Ghost of Tsushima. And thanks again, everyone. And thank you, Carlo. Thank you.